We are recording. Um, um, this is the closing podcast for the month of August. This month was on Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. This is the closing podcast. Mm. My name is Alex. And My name is Marshall. Marshall. <laughs> okay, so I want to jump in right now, mm-hmm. starting talking about the first man who knew too much. This was the Hitchcock film that we watched. We watched it together. We watched it with a bunch of people mm-hmm. on Blu-ray, Criterion. 1934. We projected it yep. big. Yeah, so it's like it was meant to be seen, like in the movie theater. Although a film purist may disagree with that. Well, but it was close enough for our money. That's right. At yeah. USC, where they pay way more money, <laughs> they watch them on 35-millimeter prints. Um, I have developed a kind of minor obsession with the movie. Tell um, us. It's planted seeds in my head of, of story universes and characters. It's for those that uh, have not, who did not watch this one, this is... A, a British film from Hitchcock's British period. The basic setup of the plot is a couple uh, vacationing, their child gets kidnapped so that uh, some kind of shadowy political force will have leverage over them because they found out something that they shouldn't have known and had no business knowing. Right? It's, it's a basic, that's the setup of the story, and it's a basic. As that's as basic as you can put it. Yeah. The s- particulars of the characters are what fascinate me about this particular rendition of it. And yeah. those are particulars that when Hitchcock remade the film uh, in the 50s with Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day are gone entirely, which is why I did not enjoy that film very much. Yeah. These two characters, though, the husband and the wife, they are extraordinary people to have found in a movie from the 1930s they are so comfortable with the edges of monogamy mm-hmm. and it just it, it thrills me to see people who are like they would be looked at askance today mm-hmm. and they're leading this 1930s black and white movie uh, and and that they're just fascinating to me. And they they and the cinematic world in which they live, with the the texture of the old film, just I just love spending time there. And I'm going to borrow that Blu-ray again, and I'm going to watch it and rewatch it, and you'll never get it back. Um, <laughs> Because I feel like I feel like I'm being taken to a kind of secret world that I'm not really supposed to know about, but I get to spend time there anyway. They are, how would you describe them? They're they're jet setting. They're kind of that we, we meet them when they're in a holiday skiing. Uh, up in the mountains and there's this friend that the wife has. Yeah. This kind of like suave debonair yeah. Frenchman who it, it's like Im- almost implied that 
he and the wife have more than a friendship. Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, but the husband is completely fine with this. Yeah, I was, and, I was surprised And he too. just plays along, and he's maybe a bit impish about it. Yeah. Um, and it's maybe it's maybe half implied that their daughter is only the daughter of the wife and not of the husband. There's a lot of kind of shadowy implication into right. which you can read fantastic stories and fantastic character beats. All um, understated, though. All understated, yeah. yeah. And it, it's the big basic plot which is stated clearly. All the, almost all the character stuff that I find so fascinating is just understated and implicit. Um, Can I throw my, my chorus in here? Yes, absolutely. Because I feel the same way. I felt like compared to the 1950s version that this was a better version, even though it was a more rough-edged version, and he... Alfred Hitchcock felt that it was the work of a talented amateur compared to the work of a professional, the later one, he's saying the, the professional. And I agree that the later one is much more polished and it's bigger and more important in the cinema and it's, you know, it's got movie stars in it and budget and, and special effects and color and, and, and more impressive camera work. And I admire it in some ways, but I just don't have any kind of a heart for it like yeah. I do for that 1930s one. And one reason is that these, what, what you're saying, these characters are more interesting, they're more mysterious, there's more implied, it gets me involved more. Yeah, well there's a moment, um, the wife is, uh, a, she's in a shooting competition, she's like a world renowned expert uh, marksman, you know, shooting at clay pigeons. Mm -hmm. and. She's clearly extremely wound up about the uh, competition, and her daughter, who's like you know this innocent uh, uh, bubble of a child, comes bounding up to her, completely distracts her. She's obviously like containing some annoyance, some irritation. Um, she's obviously been distracted. We know that it matters to her that she wins because she's very competitive. Mm -hmm. She shoots. She misses. We see like a note of something like angry implied just really subtle and then she just kind of we just see her put it to the side and go oh well and you know gives her daughter a present and like all is well and all is fine and it's like without that being a kind of cheesy Doris Day style all American thing where it's like the you know the good old American family will never be broken by their adorable but annoying child. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's it's more like a personal decision that she's just so on the level that she can just do that, and it makes you really care about that relationship between parents and child. Mm. Uh, as later, when um, she's off dancing with her maybe boy toy, French uh, suave guy, mm -hmm. and the husband. Uh, finds like a, a knitted wool sweater on the table and yeah. puts, it's, it's, it's half done and he winds the knitting around the French guy's, uh, the button on the back of his waistcoat yeah. and it, you know they wind around the ballroom tangling everyone up and it's like he and the daughter sitting at the table giggling like children about it and it's like, what What are these relationships? What are they doing in this movie? What are they doing in this movie from the 1930s? And what are they doing when they're completely incidental to the main armature of the plot? You yeah. could These adventure stories are like, they're molds into which you can pour because you know that the mold works, because you know that, that they know too much, their daughter's been kidnapped, they have to kind of ride this awkward line where it's like, who do they trust? Where do they go next to go and find her to get her back? 
you know that that story shape works. You can pour any characters you like into it, and you can give it any texture you like. And I love the characters they got and the texture they ended up with. Because now, are you feeling any guilt over giving away this much to your audience? Not really, because okay. I don't think that that is saying that the daughter gets kidnapped a spoiler. I think, yeah, technically it is. Oh, and okay. I'm sorry. Well, since and you, I'm since sorry. You, yeah, and since you've given that much away, I let me tell you what I I will myself last tonight. But I, I, I want to I say what, how... It happens right at the beginning of the movie, so it's not that bad. And there are other surprises which are way better, which will completely make up for the fact that that one was ruined. But, but for those of you who, who can unlisten to this, if you want to get the first experience, let me tell you what was so exciting about it. When I first watched this movie, which was a terrible, terrible, terrible print... And the Criterion Blu-ray has been restored, and it's just wonderful. But in spite of that terrible print, I couldn't understand anything that was going on in that first part. And that was actually to my advantage because I'm sitting there for 10 minutes or so trying to sort through what they're saying, and then when the daughter gets kidnapped and when they are given the alternatives... I was completely involved because I'd been in a state of 10 or 12 minutes of, of reeling confusion. And mm -hmm. so that now that I know, well, that's not confusing. I know what's happening. It just really was a, an emotional punch. And there was a rhythm to it, which is a common rhythm in films, which is to have a flurry of no pauses in between. And then distinct pauses. And yes, yes, we understand. No, don't do anything to hurt her. And there was something about that bringing it out in relief that brought it out in an emotional relief as well as understanding. So I just, I loved that right from the, the first 15 to 20 minutes is how much he, he put a blindfold on me and spun me around in circles before he took me to the initiation of this secret society that you're going into. Mm -hmm. Although, now... <laughs> Now I have to get to the bit of this movie, okay. and I think we, I'm I'm certainly going to be talking mostly about this movie, because this for me was like the biggest thing. Just this movie was the biggest thing I got from Hitchcock, yeah. and and there's a really big thing which has implications for my future as a movie watcher, which yeah. we'll get to. Um, but first, I just want to complain about the move that this film pulls. And I'll do this without any. Spoilers, as in what I'm going to tell you will not make the experience of the film worse. I'm not going to give you any specifics about plot. I'm just going to tell you uh, the nature of how the movie treats its characters' screen time later on in the film. Right? Okay. It will not ruin anything, I promise. And so I will only have to flagellate myself for one thing tonight. Okay. When the plot gets underway and our lead characters have gained intention and they are pursuing something and they need to go out into the world and do things and accomplish things you would think with the heart of the movie being the relationship between the husband and wife that it would be the husband and wife Welcome to 1934. <laughs> In a way, they sidestep what you would think are the conventions of that time. 
And in another way, the husband and his idiot brother Clive go out and do all the stuff, and the wife doesn't entirely stay at home, but she has her own separate thing going on, which gets way less screen time. Yeah. And it <laughs> almost <laughs> ruins the movie. <laughs> idiot Clive. The bumbling brother. Which is very badly done. With a pencil mustache. With, oh. He's got one of those, like, Vincent Price creepy mustaches. Yes. And he's... His, he just he just soaks up screen time that should be being used for these gems of characters. Yeah, he was the comedic relief, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. He was an attempt at the comedic relief. Yeah. Which was which was done better in the remake because the comedic relief is uh, more directly tied to the setup of the story. What was the comedic relief in the remake? Um, he just. Jimmy Stewart in the remake just kept getting into situations where he was clearly in over his head and didn't know what was going on. Okay. There's a, and this is, I'll do this without spoiling too, there's a taxidermy-related oh, yeah, scene. Yeah. So that's comedic relief, which is more to do with, it's more woven into the the story. Clive is just completely bolted on. It's like <laughs> the people who came up with the story... <laughs> it's it's as though, and this may well be the case, and probably is, it's like they literally could not imagine not doing that. Uh-huh. It's like they could not imagine that the wife would be going out with the husband yeah. into that uh, traditionally male world of the out there and the doing and the accomplishment. Yeah. Um, and that sucks. And that's something <laughs> that, that, I mean, I'd love to remake that movie and fix that because it's... You know, politics aside, even the film's heart is only half as big from that point on, okay. and it's only half as interesting until we get back to uh, the climax and it kind of integrates yeah. it back in. It does pull itself out of that at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I felt the same way that it was. Uh, that wasn't my favorite part of the movie, as, as Clive and, and our our dad, the dad character, uh, pursuing this. But it didn't bother me that much. And part of the reason it didn't bother me that much because there were so many other good surprises. I mean, the, the temple of the Church of the Sun Worshippers and the, the woman who called with the criteria uh, and, mm. and all of that stuff. I just thought those were just fascinating characters. And the faults and flaws and the limitations of 1930s filmmaking actually entertain me more than the later movies mm-hmm. that fight in, that with, with the chairs and stuff was so bizarre but that was it was also something I want to go back and watch again because it happened with pacing that was so unusual and so explosive it wasn't realistic but it was fascinating and I've mentioned this to you before my favorite thing about 30s movies and there's take some technical yeah. explanation here is that microphones were and when it, it, the sound only came in in 27, and it wasn't really established completely until about 1929. And microphones were really, really rough to deal with. If a person moved around, uh, it, it created noise that messed up the recording, and the, the cameras were, were uh, big and noisy, and so they had to put them in boxes. And everybody, everybody had to speak clearly into the mic and make sure that every consonant was articulated clearly. And there's an intensity in that, as if people are speaking to each other underwater. And also the intensity of the lights. Film wasn't that fast back then. So they've got these hot lights on everybody, and you can almost feel everybody sweating under them. And there's an urgency that we've got to get these in just a few takes. 
that brings something to the screen that I still respond to and just love that about the old 30s film. The artificiality and the intensity are two of the things I love. And this was a great example. 1934, it wasn't like in the later 30s where things started to get more sophisticated. Uh, but it also wasn't like 1931, which 1931, some great, great American films from, from even earlier than that. But this is also uh, one of the students that watched it with us said that he had a hard time responding to it uh, because of the style. And I said, yeah, the 30s style was different. He said, yeah, but I've been watching, been watching uh, Warner Brothers Gangsters films from that same era and even earlier, and they hadn't gotten in the way to him. So I think it was the fact that it was British. And I think oh, that yeah. the fact that when you were in the 1930s, the differences between the U.S. And, and England were greater than they would be now because there wasn't so much mass communication. And so tones and styles and flavors of communicating were, I think, more uh, exaggerated. But again, that's part of what I like about it, is that I do feel immersed in another world, and then Hitchcock takes yeah. me a little bit here and a little bit here, and then into this underworld, and yeah. really creepy character with, with Peter Laurie that just... Yeah, and on the intensity of the sets of that early Hollywood stuff, intensity of the movies. Um, I'm preempting myself. Intensity of the movies of the early Hollywood stuff. I think the sets are a huge part of it because this is before they filmed on location much. Um, when you film on location and it's in the real world, and we know that that world just keeps going and going and going, it's kind of like the focus of the movie can't help but disperse out into the air. Um, and if it's all on sets, and maybe this is just a figment of my imagination, but it's still real to me. When it's on sets, it's like that focus just bounces off the walls and comes back into the camera. It's yeah. insular. It's like it's womb-like. Yeah, it's like uh, an entirely <laughs> self-contained universe, and the intensity of it just builds up, <laughs> and you can be completely enveloped in it. Yeah, I like and, that. And uh, yeah, and watching this movie which is, uh, there's something about old film. I'm not a fan of the 50s film that we saw in his later films. Yeah. I hate film from like the 80s. It looks kind of like plasticky and grungy to me and I just don't like that look. But this old, older stuff um, has a flatness to it that emphasizes the shapes, the lights, the darks in a way that uh, say you look at 4K now as I was doing I went into a Best Buy and they've got those big 4K screens yeah. in there now um, and you can feel the space of it yeah. and you can see every single detail all in exactly equal focus and it's it, you just you get a sense even if it's not in 3D of a kind of 3D space this is exactly the opposite it's flattened out so it's almost closer to 2D animation yeah, it so has a little bit of that kind of purity of and quickness of communicating a feeling. Yeah, and, and Hitchcock was really good with lenses too, and he's aware of that. And even that, one of those opening shots of the, the skiing place was almost like a graphic design. It almost looked like we were looking at something that was designed on a flannel graph, mm -hmm. all meant to be flat because it was through a long lens which compressed the space. But uh, I love the cinematography of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. I love it of the 40s too. 50s has started to bother me. In the 60s doesn't do much for me. And then by the time we got to the 70s with a more naturalistic and grainy look, I do like that. I didn't used to. I love the 80s look. I okay. feel like the 80s was a wonderful era for... for well, you like that um, underground, grungy sense But the thing, the thing I like about the 80s is that it brought better... Uh, the 70s, late 60s were where the... In American films, they were uh, 
making it more naturalistic, more realistic, like they had mm -hmm. in, in France and Italy earlier. Yeah. But uh, in the 70s, they were keeping that, mm -hmm. but it seems like about yeah. the time of the 80s, production values went up without damaging the soul of the movie. By the time the 90s came in, I felt like the production value started to replace the soul of it. But I'm getting off track okay. here. We're supposed to be talking about Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, I was on something with the uh, the quality of film. I, I, I can't wait to watch more films from not just Hollywood but all around the world of that that are on that kind of film stock uh, projected or in very high def because I really haven't this was the first time I had ever not the first time I had ever watched a movie from that era mm -hmm. but the first time I had ever watched it big and the first time I had ever watched it in that good a reproduction it makes such a difference uh, if you're a film, I was shocked by how much of a difference. It yeah, made. if you're a film student, you should. Uh, you sh you've got the good. Adva the advantage of Hitchcock is that he started. I think his first film was 1927, and it was a silent film, and so he was working all the way into uh, early 70s, I think. So the arc of his career went through styles, and he was always Hitchcock, and I feel like he really did get his his style in the 30s, and you've got you get to see era one era after after uh, another with the same film director and even the technology changes you know moving to color better cameras wider screen etc but i feel like i've yanked us all around uh, with opinions about film film history Wh where where do we head with this you loved the 1934 version of a man who knew the man who knew too much. I do too. I I think it's my favorite of the Hitchcock films. It's the one I'll watch mm -hmm. the most often. That is that's th that is my starting point. I think for a whole developing obsession is what I'm saying. Um, I don't know when I'm going to have opportunities to watch old films. I'm going to stop saying old films to watch films from that period projected again yeah. um, but I'm gonna find some and I'm gonna take them and I don't know how long that preoccupation is gonna last but it's giving me something that I long for from film that I get from animation but there isn't enough animation because animation takes so long to make it takes so much money yeah. um, which is a combination of that visual smack, that visual uh, poetry of the colors, or even if it's in black and white, the colors, the shapes, and the sound that uh, cinema brings to that, that you don't get in painting, uh, and the story. Yeah. And those three together, but especially the cinematic, the sound and the visual, um, I just crave to be immersed in. I love the sound of the uh, 30s movies too. I love the sound because uh, early 30s they didn't usually have uh, score behind the, the words because it would uh, distract and so everybody's speaking against silence and there's something about that that really brings it out in relief. I love it. Uh, you know there's, there's a lot of good movies uh, from the 30s and I wish more and more on Blu-ray Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to make it so that the ones that are on Blu-ray are the ones that I want to watch next. And the uh, Warner Brothers Gangsters films, there's a few of them. I think there's a, I've got four or five of them that are that era that are really worth watching. Uh, but back to Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. uh, 
What did you think of Rear Window? We started with Rear Window. Rear Window, to me, it's the things that I don't so much like about Hitchcock. We talked about this in the last podcast. He has a kind of flippancy about him that, like, everything in the movie is just a game. Yeah. Um, that for me in Rear Window, sometimes I find that really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, the taxidermy moment in The Second Man Who Knew Too Much is a really funny uh, moment of that. Of uh, stakes are really high <laughs> and terrible things are happening, but look at how absurd the triviality of this moment is. Um, but in Rear Window, it made the movie seem like a cop-out to me. Um, without spoiling anything, the ending kind of just goes bing, bang, boom, and then it's wrapped up, which is typical of a Hitchcock ending, I found, which I, I don't like at all. Even Vertigo, which we'll talk about Vertigo, because I really, that one got under my skin. Mm-hmm. Um, even Vertigo, it's like, you know, the, the ending... I mean, I'm struggling here because I have a metaphor for this that I wrote down yeah. that uh, is violently sexual in nature. Yeah. So I'm going to pass on that, and we'll talk about what we're going to have in the <laughs> podcast as far as uh, yeah, censorship I, I, I kind of have like an idea what you're, what yeah, you're getting But you at. get where I'm going with that. Yeah, I do, and, and I do uh, sense that about it. Somebody else pointed out when we were watching The Man Who Knew Too Much, the way it wrapped up, it, it didn't... Uh, that doesn't bother me that mm-hmm. much. I think that that's, there's, in fact, there's something that audiences kind of like about that, or mm-hmm. maybe they did. Um, I liked Rear Window a lot, and I, those okay. of you who don't know Hitchcock's work, I would start with Rear Window. I would start with Rear Window partly because it's over two hours long, so you're definitely gonna, mm-hmm. going to be sitting through a full movie. And it has, in the first half hour or so, a lot of 1950s movie tropes and chit chat and chance to see the movie stars, uh, things that can go, rub you wrong. But if you give it a 100% attention, you will get emotionally involved. You will care. So I feel like he does do the thing in that movie that you want people to experience. Oh, wow, we got a feeling during mm-hmm. that. Watch this and enjoy it. So I found that it's a good one to introduce people to that haven't seen his movies before. Yeah, and it's, it's the feeling Hitchcock does which I connected with least. Um, it is a kind of like, it's high tension, it's cold. It's like cold, like a stainless steel knife. Mm-hmm. And it's not <laughs> something that I particularly connect with. I'm pretty chill and squishy. Uh-huh. Um, what I found underneath that though, kind of, throbbing away within Hitchcock which really comes out in Vertigo there's something a lot warmer not warmer like nicer but warmer like the inside of a body part is warmer it's Vertigo is like it's it's not like knives it's like a sort of squishy organy pulsing tissuey heart and the heart sometimes freezes, and it sometimes skips, and it sometimes has a heart attack. But it's it see it feels more alive to me. That movie feels more alive to me. It has a, a slowness to its pace. It kind of just it drips really slowly, and it sits you in the mind of another human being, and it really gets into his pathos, um, and does not 
make fun of it really unless unless it's if it's mocking it then it's mocking it with the knowledge that the fact that it's mocking it is tragic it's it's a movie that just it wrapped me up and it got under my skin and what after I was finished watching it like I it was one of those movies where I went outside and a friend drove me to a coffee place and we got uh, you know you know we sort of went out for the evening and it's like everywhere we were going in the car was smooth like the cinematography in Vertigo following the cars around super smooth and everything life slowed down to that pace of Jimmy Stewart following Kim Novak in the car and I was seeing green everywhere like that like in the sky it was late and the sun had already gone away but there's that subtle band of green in the sky was the loudest thing that I could see outside you know the lights were red they turned orange and it's like (gasps) vertigo green and all you can see is that it just kind of got the rhythm of it got into me and that's it's a thing which is like it's buried in Hitchcock most of the time Mm -hmm. it's buried under all that you know all those taxidermy scenes and all of those uh, um sharp twists and all of that sort of mocking uh, playful sense of humor but in Vertigo it's like that stuff, it's still there but it kind of dies away and it kind of gets absorbed into the throbbing heart and it's, and, and that's why I was particularly annoyed by how suddenly the ending comes on there, it needs just like I mean even just 15 more seconds at the end, huh. 15 more seconds yeah. So that the, so that the final like two or three events that happen right before the end, just so that they're spread out a bit more, um, so they're not gone before I have a chance to register what's happening. Yeah, with this kind of sensitive assessment and criticism about it, you should be telling stories with pictures and making films or doing something where you're able to say, look, I'm I'm watching someone who's done a, a job that is really good, but there are things about it that they're still not up mm-hmm. to my standard, mm-hmm. and I think I can what do better. Taste? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not sure that I could criticize much in Vertigo for not being up to my standards. I think it was a masterpiece. I'm going to give it another taste. shot. I've only seen it once, and it wasn't my favorite. And I don't want to elaborate on why. But it it felt contrived to me, and mm-hmm. I mean any Hitchcock film feels contrived to me. But there was just something about it. It might have been my mood. So I'm going to give it another shot. You're convincing me because I, I remember there was something. It might be the things that I didn't like about it were exactly the things that were its strength but they were going against my expectation. What was the feeling it gave you that you didn't like, that you reacted badly to? That I was watching a filmmaker who was trying too hard to pull out the stops and and get an effect out of me. And again, that could have just been my attitude, that I didn't want the comedian to try to to pull out the stops and be super funny. I didn't want Hitchcock to pull out the stops and do these kind of things. But I felt like I was watching it and too aware of his technique. All right, okay, so you kind of felt about it the way that some people feel about Psycho the way that reviewer, we, we read a review of Psycho, a very negative one, yeah. printed at the time of the release of the movie right. which kind of had this problem with Psycho yeah you know, and it like sort of congratulated, like begrudgingly congratulated Hitchcock on yeah, yeah, yeah you're really good you know what you're doing but uh, please make something you know how to make now is essentially the thrust of the movie. And it just felt like the movie was just trying to get a rise out of him that was cheap. Yes, yeah, I, I did feel that way. But again, it's been so long, and I, I, it's hard for me to... I, I don't want to elaborate on it, because it's not fresh. Rear window, I think though. it's a much more... 
un, uh, it's a, I want to say unselfconscious film. It's a much more. It it seems like a much more compulsive film to me. It seems like Hitchcock did that did Vertigo out of compulsion. And that couldn't that tie he needed be me to make really it. You mean that he uh, compulsive that he it, needed to make this film? He, he needed it like he couldn't help it almost. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. an anomaly in his filmography. I don't, I don't think at all he was going. Um, I'm going to do something different. And it's really going to shock people. I think that was Psycho. Yeah. Um, I think Vertigo was. It's you know you make fifty films, you make a film that doesn't quite fit with the rest of them yeah. because the the mix the emotional mix that's in you and the things you're thinking about at the time are not always going to be the same right and it was just a one where he was he, he seemed to be just compelled towards at that moment making something that was more reverent and introspective than he normally made yeah and he admitted in, in that that reviewer uh, he admitted to that reviewer that psycho was. Mm -hmm. something that he was trying to, to make it so that he could give people something that they didn't have before. Didn't he? Wasn't there something in there where he he sort of acknowledged that you've got to keep them on their toes and they're, they're, you've got to be... Yeah, well, he was saying uh, uh, audiences aren't interested in mysteries on trains That's and little right, old ladies. Yeah. That's right. So you've got you to find more creepy stuff to give them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to get back to Rear Window. All right. Rear Window, I didn't expect anything deep. I mean, Hitchcock deals with murder all the time, but you're not going to get any insight into murder. You're just going to get a chill from it. You're going to get a scare. You're going to say, are we going to get murdered? Is our, is our character going to get murdered? Are the cops going to get him? So I wasn't expecting any depth from it. But I got what he's good at, which is manipulating suspense mm -hmm. to keep the audience involved. Mm -hmm. The last one, North by Northwest, that we watched on the big screen which I'd seen several times previous, never seen it on the big screen. I thought this was meant to be seen on the big screen. It was more powerful. I wasn't, it's never been my favorite movie, but I feel like it's got some great scenes in it and some wonderful mm -hmm. things about it. But it's certainly one that you don't have to worry that if you recommend it to anybody that they're not gonna, they're gonna be completely bored because they aren't going to because it's got such famous scenes that are great for keeping an audience involved. But it is two hours and what? Two hours and fifteen oh, yeah. minutes, it's or very long. So, yeah. Where do we go from here? Well, I want to say if, and I think I'm, think I'm getting to the point where I'm like talked out on Hitchcock for the time being, but I am. He's he's still in there. He's, I'm taking things with me from his filmography, some of which is not necessarily to do with Hitchcock, mm -hmm. just the, the, the experience with films of that period um, is going to be a thing now. And it, it needn't have started with Hitchcock, but it did start with Hitchcock. And he's, he's kind of everyone's, or not everyone's, but a lot of people's gateway. The, he's the mainstream gateway to film of the first half of the 20th century almost. Um, and I thought I, I brought up that metaphor I think the first time we talked with the implication that I've already passed through the Hitchcock gateway because I've seen a couple of his films mm. um, and I, <laughs> I had, had not you know I have now I think passed through the Hitchcock gateway at least the first 
couple of gateways that he can offer me. Sure. And one of those is to to the past, to the riches of um, this style of filmmaking that I am woefully lacking. Uh, okay. And and the other is perhaps I don't know. I don't even know what what I'm taking from Vertigo exactly. I'm just taking Vertigo from Vertigo. Um, but it's definitely it's started. There are moods in Hitchcock beyond what we would think he would have. There are deeper and more haunting. Haunting is really the word. Haunting moods in Hitchcock's filmography, and I think *The Man Who Knew Too Much*, the first one, and *Vertigo*, the two best examples that I saw of that, which have got under my skin, and which I'm gonna have a great time absorbing into myself and into my work. Okay. Here's what I would leave with. Uh, to visual storytelling students, to storytelling students of any kind. Sometimes storytelling students, when they're working on their craft to tell a story, bore the audience, which is a cardinal sin. Mm -hmm. And some lesser storytellers who may not be at the level you aspire to be, at least don't bore their audience. And Hitchcock had a long career as a person who was able to engage an audience he may bore you, but his best won't. His best will involve you. And like Rob Reiner, who when he had only directed comedies and a fantasy and wanted to direct a thriller, a psychological thriller, Misery, he went to the master of suspense and bought every or checked out every VHS tape that he could get of Alfred Hitchcock to study how he did it and really learned some methods to keep an audience on the edge of their seat and did it very well with Misery. So I recommend it as a, I recommend Hitchcock's filmography as a way to get in touch with film history, to see someone who was working in England and came over to Hollywood, to see somebody who spanned these eras, to see someone who was not afraid to brand himself and keep his quality high, to see someone who is working very visually. He did not care that much about actors. He cared about telling the story with bits of film. He was also an articulate teacher. He was interviewed by Francois Truffaut <laughs> in the 1960s, Maybe not the best thing to emulate about Hitchcock, that he didn't care about actors. Yes, that, but, but you know, the thing about that, though, he, he, it's not that he's going to be the one who's going to get great performances out of actors. But because cinema is pictures, mm -hmm. and because he wanted to be the star of every movie, and look at how well I told this with pictures, there is something for comic book artists who don't really get to work with actors. There's something for children's book uh, illustrators. There's something for people who are going to tell, uh, tell stories with pictures that you're going to get out of Hitchcock in a special way. It's very different from when you get uh, filmmakers. Uh, Scorsese and, and Woody Allen and some others uh, know to put the camera in front of someone who is so extraordinary to watch and the performance going on in front of the camera is so good that all you care about is just get that performance on film and the performance can carry it. I think uh, uh, Peter Bogdanovich said that about one of his movies, that, that it was nothing special, camera work wasn't anything special, but the performances were so good that it was worth it. Mm -hmm. But Hitchcock is worth, gosh, he's worth at least 
12 films for a person who's learning to tell stories, yeah. and a few of those are worth really sitting down and writing down all of the scenes and figuring out what he does to get a bit of it. Also, Martin Scorsese did a little homage, I think in about, two, say, 2000, late 2000, between 2005 and 2010, where he did a short bit that he used every one of Hitchcock's cliches, tropes, techniques, and, and exaggerated him, did one with modern equipment. I don't know, we, we could find the link of it and, and put it on, on uh, link of it onto YouTube and, and send students mm -hmm. to it. But it's a wonderful thing where you can see this guy has watched all these Hitchcock films and so he can do a little short film that's got every one of those tricks in there. Because imitating, it's like imitating an actor, you can start to pick up some of their vibe and imitating a filmmaker like Hitchcock, doing a few scenes the way Hitchcock did, trying to milk the tension the way Hitchcock did, can be a really good exercise for strengthening a visual storyteller's repertoire of skills. If you couldn't tell already, Marshall is really given to hero worship. I am. Marshall has a vast pantheon. <laughs> he, he lives from hero to hero. Well, people have done such great work. You know, you figure, but you look back over the last few thousand years, there are people who have done such great work that I'd like to live to be several hundred years old just so that I can spend more time appreciating each person's contribution. It's a bit like a person may feel when they go to a potluck and there's too much, move, <laughs> too much food to eat. Ray Bradbury used to talk about when he'd go into a library how depressed he'd get because there was so much in there he wanted to read, but he never lived long enough to read all of that. And now we've got that problem times times 10,000 because there's just so much good production, good, good material in the world. And hmm. for a visual storyteller in particular or for a person who just likes uh, uh, suspenseful stories, Hitchcock is a hero. Okay. All right, I think that does it for the month of Hitchcock. Thank you for coming along with us. Yes. And next month, we're going to be doing Schubert, composer of the Romantic Era, Franz Schubert. Franz Schubert. See you next time. See you then.